Our first reading is Judges chapter 6. This can be found on page 248 of the Church Bible. Judges chapter 6. And we commence at verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abazarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my, bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast, put in the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abyssalites. We then move on to verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have, have, as you have said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let, me. let me make just one more request. 
allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with the dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Verses 1 to 15. Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this. Ask this only to test him, for he already knew what he had in mind and what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves that were left over from those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Amen.
Thank you. How very appropriate that on a day when we are talking about signs, we should have Geraldine signing God's word to us. We get really hung up on words, don't we? Sometimes we don't need them as much as we think we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day and for the opportunity to hear from you. I pray that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts will be pleasing to you today. Amen. Lovely. I've got some poems for you this morning. Not great literature. Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. It's another one. St. Swithin's day, if thou dost reign, for forty days it will remain. St. Swithin's day, if thou dost fare, for forty days twill reign no mare. Don't know if you know that one. Oh, there we go. But we do love our weather, don't we, in Great Britain? We love to hate it. We love to talk about it. We love to discuss what may or may not be coming our way. I bet you all have your favorite little signs for what the weather is going to do. Children in the playground learn rhymes, don't they, to help them predict the weather. And some are based on observation, perhaps a bit of science and a lot of good sense. Whether you're in the habit of talking about sailors or shepherds in that first rhyme, both of those occupations have a fairly keen interest in what the next day's weather will be. Apparently, science tells us that um, the bringers of fair weather, the high weather systems, trap particles of dust in the atmosphere in the evening, and so they scatter the blue light uh, leaving concentrations of red light for us in the sky. So it is based in science. Other rhymes <coughs> are perhaps less reliable, scientifically speaking. St. Swithin was the Anglo-Saxon Bishop of Winchester, way back in the 800s. And he asked that when he died, he would be buried out of doors with his people, the people of the city, where he could feel the rain. Well, some years later, someone decided to dig him up, poor chap, and put his bones in a place of honor in the cathedral. And folklore tells us that he showed his displeasure by making it rain from that day, which is the 15th of July, um, for the next 40 days. I'm not sure that that's quite such a reliable sign of what the weather is to come, but we can see what happens this year see whether it rains or not on the 15th of July. We're looking today at the idea of finding God's will for our lives through some sort of sign. As a red sky at night often heralds a good day to follow, is it okay to ask God for a sign about what comes next in our lives? We've spent a few weeks considering how we recognize God's voice when we hear it daring to admit what it feels like when we don't hear anything at all, and having grace to let God be God and answer our prayers in his own way. Last week, Simon helped us to consider actively pursuing God's will through fasting. Today, we've heard the story of Gideon, who not once, not twice, but three times asked God to give him a sign 
that he was hearing him right. Who doesn't have sympathy with him? An ordinary chap seeking to get on with his life in a way that pleases God. And yet he was somewhat bewildered as to how he could be involved in God's eternal purposes. Let's take some time now to unpack this story a bit and see what the Bible tells us about seeking God through a sign. If you'd like to turn to Judges 6, we'll be dipping in and out of that. But we will be mentioning other places in the Bible where God speaks to his people through a sign. So we meet Gideon in what is not a happy season for God's people. In spite of all the miraculous victories of the past, Israel has begun to neglect their God as times have become easier for them. They had, it seems, forgotten to fulfill their side of the bargain with God and they were no longer faithful to him. They'd begun to worship Baal and in order that they might think to cry out to him again, God allowed the neighboring peoples the Midianites and the Amalekites, to terrorize them, really. They used camels to come sweeping in with a huge military advantage, long-range and speedy as they are. They came every year, and they used up all the cattle and the crops and the fruit, leaving nothing at all for the winter for the Israelites and forcing them to take refuge in the inhospitable mountain regions rather than living in the open towns and fields and villages. Although they were still living in the promised land, God's people were really feeling rather abandoned by him. Threshing, which is what Gideon was doing, is a rather dusty and unpleasant job. It's when the farmers separate the edible bit of the corn from the husk and the chaff that grows round it. And it's usually done out in the open so that the winds can carry away the chaff. Now the harvest had clearly been so tiny and Gideon is clearly so scared of the raiding parties that he has opted to do this essential task in the relative safety of a wine press. That would usually be a hollow in a rock face, so whilst rather confined, it would have been safer for him. The New Testament talks of Gideon as a hero of the faith, and yet here he is, a scared young farmer, trying his best to stay out of trouble when the messenger of the Lord greets him. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, he says. Well, what a strange thing to say to somebody hiding in the hollow in a rock. Some interpret that as ironic humor. But I prefer to think that God always sees our true potential. We might well be a cowardly wreck on the outside. But God sees us as the men and women he made us to be. And he addresses us as such. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And you. And you. And you. Gideon, however, 
is fully conscious of his own weakness. He knows how poor his family is at this point and how cowardly he feels. He describes himself as the least likely candidate for this job. And he's honest about his doubts and feelings of abandonment by God. In the face of all these difficult circumstances, God plans to use Gideon for his kingdom purposes, just as he is. But Gideon doesn't see it. If God is with us, he says, why is everything so very awful? It's at this point that the messenger says something, which I think is terribly important for us to note. He says, just get on with it. I am sending you. In other words, what more do you need? I am what's important. It's my plan, and I'll be with you. I'm on the job. Just as he did with Moses, As he stood before the burning bush, he assures Gideon that all he needs to prevail is God's presence. But just like Moses in his human frailty, Gideon asks for a sign. Now, I drove up to Yorkshire at the beginning of the week. And on that long journey, I spent quite a lot of time thinking about signs. Some signs simply tell you where you are. It's useful. You can have been so busy driving along that you don't notice how far you've gone. It can be good on the journey of life to take stock, to have a personal audit, if you will, and assess exactly where you've got to. Is it where you should be? Or do you need to make some adjustments? Are you serving him? where he really wants you to? Or is it time to embark on a new adventure together? Other signs tell you which way to go. They point you in the right direction. On the way home from Yorkshire, to my horror, the motorway ground to a halt and was closed for a while. We decided to leave the relative security of the motorway, which was a familiar route, And we did so without being absolutely certain which was the best road to take. We had an end point in mind. But the most obvious route to get there was blocked, so we had to try an alternative. We followed signs, and we hoped for the best, really. It was so encouraging to see Bath signposted along the way, because I'd never tried that route before. I thought I'd made a good choice, given all the information available to me, but I just didn't know for certain. And so it was really a lovely thing to reach a junction and find Bath was one of the options signposted. Other signs simply give you orders. Stop. Left only. Speed restrictions. 50 miles an hour. 40 miles an hour. 30 miles an hour. These sorts of signs can be very discouraging if you're on a long journey and you just want to get on. But they are very important and necessary. 
They're pieces of information you really need. So also it is on the journey of life. Sometimes God stops us in our tracks, slows us down, diverts us. We might not end up taking the journey we thought we were going to take. But if we wish to stay in God's will, we will take heed of these signs too and accept them as part of his guidance. Triangle signs offer us warnings. Dangerous bend in the road, perhaps. Men at work. I think that one's quite funny. You rarely see men at work where you see that sign. Ice on the road. That sort of thing. It would be really foolish to ignore those signs. Sometimes God, in his mercy, pulls us up short. Brings to our attention that we need to moderate our behavior, perhaps. It might be that life seems to go wrong. It might be a verbal reproof from a brother or sister in Christ, or we might feel a lack of peace in our hearts. But because he loves us, God will sometimes gently warn us that we need to take care. Gideon was very lacking in confidence, and so he asked God for a sign, repeatedly. I wonder if God got fed up with him. God gives us signs of his love and power and beauty and creativity every day in the world in which we live. Who can watch a sunrise or gaze on a new baby without drawing breath in awe at it all? Jesus, who referred to his own death as the sign of Jonah, is in fact the greatest sign imaginable of love. Jonah in the Old Testament was swallowed by a huge fish, you may remember, and he stayed in its belly for three days before being spat out on the beach to bring good news to the people of Nineveh. God, our Heavenly Father, gave up his only son for us to death on the cross, only to rise again to life, giving us the possibility of salvation and eternal life bringing us the good news that we remember in the bread and wine of communion, it was a sign of the depth of the love he had for us, his children. Sometimes, like Gideon, we ask God for a sign to propel us forward. But what God is asking of us, really, is simply courage. Like Gideon, he would use who we are without any additional miracle, to achieve something marvelous. For when we are his, and we trust in him, he can do great and glorious things through us. In effect, he stores his treasure in the jars of clay that are our lives. In the Old Testament, the wonders of nature are used to proclaim who God is, Extraordinary things happen occasionally, like the burning bush, to fortify God's servants, to give them a vision of who it is that they're following. God gave Moses signs to authenticate his ministry 
And he sent fire for Elijah to convince the prophets of Baal who he was. In extraordinary circumstances, God sends a dream or a messenger. But that is not always a good thing. In the days of Daniel, a hand appeared to write a message on the wall for King Belshazzar. Now, I don't know about you, but I often wish God would simply write me a letter or send me an email to tell me what to do next. But the message for King Belshazzar was one of final and fatal judgment, and I'm not sure I'd want that. Rather than a dramatic judgment to catch the attention of someone who's been ignoring him, God would rather we spent time with him and listen for his gentle whisper. More often, he talks through those around us, and it's only later, just like Gideon, that we realize on reflection that the words we heard were actually the words of the Lord. In the New Testament era, <coughs> excuse me, signs and wonders attest to Jesus, to his power and his true nature, bringing glory to God and giving us a taste of his future heavenly kingdom here on earth. The lame were made to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. The hungry were fed and sinners were forgiven and given a new start to life with Jesus as their friend and savior. Then, as today, the Holy Spirit works in the world to give us miraculous signs that build up our faith and point us to Jesus. A mature faith rejoices in such things and longs to see God's kingdom here on earth with increasing reality. Our faith shouldn't rely on spectacular happenings. But when you love the Lord, you long to see his healing and his wholeness on every level for the people around you. Signs can be ambiguous and are interpreted through the eyes of faith. Not everyone accepted the signs, even having met Jesus himself. He wasn't very pleased with the Pharisees when they asked him for another sign of who he was. Things had come to a head. They'd accused him of being in league with the devil in order to achieve the things he brought about. As some still do today, they rejected him as Lord. They wanted a sign. But he'd already given them signs through many miracles. Many ordinary people had already heard the good news that Jesus brought and had put their trust in him. The Pharisees were not willing to accept what those signs were intended to mean. I think there's a challenge in there for us too. When a sign doesn't say what we want it to say, do we still accept it? There is an old saying that it's useless to ask the Lord to guide your footsteps if you're not willing to move your feet. Gideon was a courageous young man who was willing, in spite of all his insecurities and doubts, to be used by God and to step out in faith. 
do take time to read his whole story, for it's got much to teach us about asking God for guidance. It's only three chapters long, probably take you 15 or 20 minutes. But in that time, you will see an ordinary chap who earnestly desires to please God. He starts by setting his own house in order, bringing his own family back to godly ways. And he goes on to lead the nation back to closer relationship with God. Like all of us, his faith was not constant. He had highs of greatness as well as moments of uncertainty. But God was patient with him because, as it tells us in Psalm 103, God understands the frailty of human nature. And he deals tenderly and graciously with his children. In moments of paralyzing doubt, Gideon lay his fleeces before the Lord. And we remember God's gracious answer to his cry of uncertainty. But I believe his greatness lay not in those two fleeces, but in being willing to put his trust in the one who called him to follow and to step out in faith that he who is always faithful would not let him down. You don't have to be able to see the end from the beginning in order to start the journey. Only God can do that. All you need is a willingness to trust in the one who calls you and the courage to begin the journey. You might be sitting there thinking, well, it's all right for you, Esther, you're a curate. Your calling must have been clear and certain. Well, I can honestly say that 10 years ago, I would never, ever have imagined this as a destination. And I certainly haven't traveled the road I'd planned out for myself in order to get here. But I can also honestly say that at every stage along the way, however surprising it has been, God has been faithful. Sometimes he's guided me by closing a door, completely flat in my face. Sometimes he sent me on a diversion that I would never have looked for of my own free will. Often, He's spoken through the wise counsel of friends and always he's given me peace and the courage to set off on what I believe, as far as I can tell, to be the next step. And my story is no more extraordinary than that of the person sitting in front of you or behind you or to one side. Perhaps you'd like to ask each other over coffee how you came to be where you are now because sharing stories of God's goodness builds us all up. In conclusion, I think we've seen that signs are very useful when we're uncertain. They give us confidence in the way ahead, but more importantly perhaps, they give us confidence in the one who calls us to follow because that's the more important thing. Jesus, only Son of God the Father, 
is himself the sign beyond compare of God's love and faithfulness to all who would put their trust in him. The meal we're about to share around the communion table reminds us of this awesome love. And there is no better moment to bring your life once again to him, to set your house in order, and to ask for the courage to step out into whatever God is calling you to for the future.